We're going to continue in worship this morning uh, by turning to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We are uh, working our way through the book of Daniel verse by verse. And so uh, where we find ourselves this morning is Daniel chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn there with me. If you have it on your phone, tap there with me. And uh, you're going to want it in front of you this morning. Uh, so I say that every week, but it's still true this morning. So anyways, you're going to want to have it in front of you. And uh, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 8. So as you're turning there, uh, let's, uh, let's go before the Father and ask him to help us this morning. Heavenly Father, God, it is a, a humbling thought that it is your breath in our lungs. And uh, the praise that we give to you is only possible because of you, God. And so we just come to you humbled by that truth this morning. And we also come to you this morning, God, humbled by the fact of what we see in the book of James, that out of the same mouth come. Uh, blessing and curses, God, and that should not be. So with that breath that we use to honor you, God, we, we just confess to you humbly that we sometimes use that breath uh, to curse you, God, or to curse others who are made in your image, and uh, that's not right. That is sin, and so we confess it before you this morning, and we ask that your forgiveness, for your forgiveness, we uh, thank you for the reality that your blood, the blood of Jesus, covers our sin. Past, present, and future, we already uh, celebrated this morning. We thank you, God. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Lord, I pray if, if there's anyone in here this morning uh, who doesn't know you, God, I pray that through this encounter with your word that they would come to have faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, God. Lord, we also lift up those who are sick and hurting in our body, those who uh, have family members who are sick, um, and we just ask that you would draw near um, to all of us, in whatever circumstance we are in, God, whatever we walked in here with, whatever baggage we came in with, God, just that we would have a big enough view of you to know that you are big enough for it. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So we just ask for those who are weary and heavy laden, that you would give them rest this morning. God, help me as I preach your word now in Daniel chapter 8. Give me uh, your words. Give me a humble heart, a quiet spirit, and a trust in you that your word does not return void. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 8 is where we find ourselves this morning. And I'm uh, just going to start us out by saying that we have ourselves a doozy of a passage. We've been in, if you haven't been with us, we've been in the book of Daniel, uh, which is really split into two perfect halves. The first half of the book of Daniel is full of stories that if you grew up in church at all, you're probably familiar with many of them. Many Sunday school stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, or Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, great stories, really stories that we learn about God's faithfulness, and we see great examples of people who uh, were faithful in the midst of difficult situations. And then we run into Daniel chapter 7, and it all changes. And so we find ourselves in a uh, the middle of a different genre of literature called apocalyptic literature, and it is, uh, can be very difficult to understand. And so the last two weeks, we have been in Daniel chapter 7, and uh, this week now, we're in Daniel chapter 8. 
And I brought this morning, I have this Bible. I normally don't have this Bible because with me when I preach because it's so big. But this is a Bible uh, that I got, I think, my senior year of high school. And it's just my go-to Bible. I've had it with me uh, all through. Uh, I was a Bible major uh, in college at Taylor. And so I had it all four years at Taylor. And every class that I went to, take notes. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of writing in your Bible and underlining. And who else likes to write in the Bible? This is a good practice. Uh, I highly encourage it. I know sometimes you feel like, I don't want to underline something and then it's not important later, you know, and uh, it's, it's okay. Um, and then you just, you'll find it later and then you'll be like, oh, I've grown since then, you know, but everything's good to underline, so it's not like you're going to underline something bad. So anyways, this is just a tangent that's not in my notes, but it's good to underline things in scripture. And so I, I like to take notes as I hear things and every, uh, uh, every uh, sermon that I listen to, this is my Bible that I have and I like to underline or write cross references or if I read a passage and it makes me think of another passage. I write down that other passage that it makes me think of, and all, all that to say is that pretty much over the last, uh, I guess, 15 years or so now, did I do that math right, 18, I'm 33, is that 15 years ago? So yeah, 15 years. Um, this is the Bible that I had with me, that's what I do my, my quiet time in the morning with, and uh, there's basically, for the most part, you turn to a page in this Bible, it's going to have a mark on it somewhere, just for the feature of me having it for a long time. And I say all that to say, I turned to Daniel chapter 8, and I did not have a single underline or mark or cross-reference or anything in Daniel chapter 8. Now, I'm curious if you're an underliner in your Bible, does anyone have anything in Daniel chapter 8? And if so, could you show me right now, because I could use a little help. Just kidding, but not really. Okay, nobody has anything underlined in Daniel chapter 8. I have been listening to, uh, Pastor Craig turned me on to this uh, podcast, it's called Exploring My Strange Bible, it's by the guy who does the Bible Project videos, if you're familiar with those, and he goes through different books of the Bible, and he has a series where he's gone through Daniel, and he, he's so good at connecting it to like the whole story of scripture, and it's helped me immensely, and this guy completely skipped over Daniel chapter 8, so even then, I don't have it, he, it's like it doesn't exist, I didn't, he didn't even mention it, so... Um, I say all that to say it's been a little bit of a battle for me this week in sermon preparation. I, uh, there's only one other time that I can think of uh, in my uh, time preaching here at Rock Prairie where I have made so many drastic changes to the direction uh, that we're going with the sermon, including up to like 10 o'clock at night last night where I was just still making like major changes. And so just please just buckle up. And uh, I promise you, we're going to find some really good things in Daniel chapter 8. They just take a little bit of, of mining to get there because we believe, we're not going to skip it because we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and useful teach, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We believe that we're called to preach through books of the Bible as we go verse by verse, but there's just some passages that are harder than others. I'm going to show you why this passage is harder than others. See, there's different kinds of prophecy in scripture and and. Daniel chapter 7, if you were with us, one of the difficult things about um, Daniel chapter 7 was that there are all these symbols, and we didn't exactly know what they meant, what, like, and we had to kind of figure out what, what does that symbol refer to. Daniel chapter 8 actually isn't that way at all. All of the symbols in Daniel chapter 8 are basically described for us, and we can know exactly what they're all pointing to. That's not why Daniel 8 is difficult. The challenge for us is that all the things in Daniel chapter 8 already happened, and they all happened before Jesus 
even came. Now, I'm going to show you a slide right now. And this is uh, something, so I had, uh, Friday, I had Marcy stay two and a half hours later than she normally does, and we made all these slides and all these graphics, I was going to show you all this stuff, and I basically last night just cut out all of it, but this survived, so, um, so thank you, Marcy, for, uh, for doing all that, and sorry, maybe we'll use it later, I don't know, probably not, but anyways. <laughs> so this is kind of the, the timeline of, uh, of salvation history, so you see that line before is, is before the Messiah. And then where that verse vertical line represents when Jesus came the first time. Now in the Old Testament, the prophets, excuse me, I'm going to take a drink here. The prophets in the Old Testament didn't quite understand what was going to happen. They thought that when the Messiah came, that was going to immediately usher in the judgment and the eternal kingdom for God's people Right then, and they, didn't, they thought the Messiah was going to come one time, that's it. So what we know now, because Jesus explained it to us, is that not only was the Messiah going to come one time, he's actually going to come back, which means that we are living right in that middle box called the last days. Everyone say, last days. Now, I think it was last week, maybe two weeks ago, I kind of made a casual reference to the fact that we are living in the last days. And maybe some of you got a little nervous, like, oh, man, is this like how much time do we have, like a week or two or a month or what's, what do you mean by last days? When we talk about the last days in terms of a theological concept, we're talking about the time in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So in between his first coming and his second coming. We don't know how long that is. Jesus could come back in 2023 or in 2022 even. He could also come back in 2023, right? We don't know when he's going to come back. Regardless of how long it is, we are living in this period of the last days, which theologians like to describe based on a lot of the things that the Apostle Paul wrote as a time of already, excuse me, I'm going to cough here, Sorry, I didn't know if there was anyone in the sound booth ready for that, but um, I could hit my mute button. I didn't. So anyways, the time between the already and uh, the, the not yet, okay? So here we're going to just kind of make this a little bit interactive, which we don't usually do that often. But are there any things that, when you say already, I mean things that are different now because Jesus came that weren't true. So benefits that we have of Jesus' coming now that we didn't have before he came. What are some things that you can think of? Just going to have to be brave. Maybe just call it out. Or What's something that we have now that they didn't have back before Jesus came the first time? Yeah, good. So somebody said the Holy Spirit. A lot of people said the Holy Spirit. That is exactly right. So before Jesus came, only a couple people had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was really, was, uh, came on certain leaders of Israel, but it was not something that all believers had. But now, because Jesus came, we all have the Holy Spirit. The church is another thing that I heard somebody say. The church is being built. It is not just the people of Israel, but it is uh, what Paul says, the mystery of the gospel is that is both Jews and Gentiles that are now a part of God's people. Anything else that you can think of? So I think somebody maybe said sacrifices. Did I hear that? 
Completed sacrifice. Yeah, we got a couple people saying completed sacrifice. That's right. We don't, my job would be so different if y'all were bringing lambs in here that I had to kill every day, right? It would just be bloody and just be a mess, okay? So I'm super glad that that's not my job anymore. Uh, but Jesus was the once for all sacrifice. So we don't have to make continual sacrifice for sins, but we have uh, once for all sacrifice on our behalf, the perfect spot, spotless lamb, Jesus. Jesus was that sacrifice. Praise the Lord for Jesus. Amen? Very good. What are some things that you can think of that have not yet happened and will only happen once Jesus comes back the second time? No sin, yeah. So right now we're free from the power of sin as having the Holy Spirit. Sin has no more power over us. And yet we still are filled with the, we have the presence of sin, right? And we still sin. There's only like just a couple of us in here that aren't sinning. The rest of us are just sinning all the time. It's the second time I used that joke this morning. I used it in our new members class also. So hear that again. Um, so the, 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 the presence of sin, when Jesus comes back, there will be no more sin. What else can you think of? Restoration, yeah. The consummation of the kingdom. The kingdom will be completed. All things will be made new and be made right. So that's why in Revelation we have this imagery of a garden, right? That we're going really from the Garden of Eden where everything was perfect and there's going to be a, a, a new Eden in which all things are perfect and right. And we have John Crooms raising his hand in the back row. What do you got for us, John? What's that? The dead shall rise. That's exactly right. So the consummation of the kingdom is coming together. That's an extra gold star for you, John Croom, this morning. Very good. The, cons the kingdom will be completed and all of God's people, the this eternal king, will come and rule and reign forever. But we're not there yet. We are in this kind of period of the last days. Everyone with me? Okay. So let's go to the next slide. So here's a, a question now that we have to ask ourselves whenever we come across prophecy in Scripture, which is when is that prophecy going to happen? So you can see on the slide we have different options. Option A, maybe this is a, something that's prophesied that is actually going to happen before the Messiah came the first time. Option B, maybe something that's going to happen when the Messiah comes the first time. Option C, maybe this is a, a tricky one. Maybe this is something that's prophesied that would happen after Jesus but before us. So the destruction of the temple in AD 70 would be an example of this that was prophesied, that was then fulfilled after Jesus. There's another option, which is maybe th these are things that are prophesied that will happen after Jesus, and they haven't happened yet, right? So things that are kind of concerning, like right around when Jesus comes back, like what is that going to look like? Or then there's option E, maybe this is a prophecy that is talking about excuse me, I'm so sorry, uh, talking about at the second coming, when Jesus does come back, and then here's the real kicker, and this is what makes it tough, and this is what makes us scratch our heads, and this is what me kept me up all night, all week, is, is sometimes in Scripture, a prophecy could be fulfilled in multiple times and in multiple ways. 
Well, what do we do with that? That's what we say, okay, Jesus, just please help me with this, right? So some things that are going to be, but maybe they were fulfilled like before us in some way, but they're also going to be fulfilled again after us in a different way. And this is all going to make more sense. We're going to talk about this, especially when we get into Daniel chapter 9. So in some ways, we're setting ourselves up for Daniel chapter 9. But all that to say is, if you go to the next slide, you see what popped up there, Daniel chapter 8 Everything that happens in Daniel chapter 8 is something that happened and was completely fulfilled before Jesus came. And so then the question is, so what do do we do about it, right? (laughs) Sometimes, like, we're always trying to make connections in the Old Testament in terms of, okay, how does this connect to Christ? But this passage, the prophecies in it, really don't connect to Jesus like directly at all. So, so what does it mean for us? So I, need, I need someone to tell me actually. What, do, what does it mean for us? No, I'm just kidding. We are going to find some things in scripture that are going to be really useful and really helpful for us tonight, or this morning. I said, said tonight, just where my brain is right now. This morning. But the point is, it's going to help us whenever we come across these prophecies, to lay out exactly where these things happen. And so in Daniel chapter 8, the events that are prophesied are things that all happened before the Messiah came, which means these are all things that happened. You remember in the dream, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, of the man with the different, king, the different parts of the statue that represented different kingdoms, and then the stone was going to come and make it all crumble. You remember what we're talking about? And then the stone grew and filled the whole earth, and that that was Jesus, right? You remember what we're talking about? Can I get a couple of head nods if you remember that? Okay, so a couple people remember that. All these things happened before the stone came. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. And uh, it'll all make a little bit more sense as we go. And if it doesn't make any more sense, that's okay. Like, we'll work, we'll come at it again next week and we'll try again, okay? But here's where we are. And so we're talking about Daniel chapter 8 this week. And just to make it a little bit more exciting, I've given an all caps title of our sermon. You go to the next slide, which is Ram versus Goat, all right? So that's Daniel chapter 8, ram versus goat. Who's going to win? Who's excited? Who's team ram? Who's team goat? Well, we don't know yet. We haven't read it. Okay. Look with me at verse 1. It says this, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first Okay, so the vision in chapter 7 was the first year, King Belshazzar, and so now we're two years later in uh, Daniel chapter 8. A couple years have gone by since he had that first scary vision of the beast coming out of the, of the sea, right? And just to place it in the story of Daniel, this is pre-handwriting on the wall of Daniel chapter 5. So we've kind of gone back in time a little bit, actually. And so this is before uh, Daniel chapter 5 happened with the handwriting on the wall. It's before he got thrown into the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6. Verse 3. What was the vision? Well, it was a ram versus a goat. Verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and become great. So we have a ram with two horns, one higher than the other, and the ram's super powerful and does whatever he wants. What is that? 
Well, we don't actually have to guess because later on the angel Gabriel shows up and he explains all these things to Daniel. So he shows up and then Daniel gets scared and he falls on his face and he's so overwhelmed that he just falls asleep like a crazy puppy that's like all of a sudden just frantic, frantic, frantic and then just falls asleep, right? That's Daniel. And then he wakes back up and, uh, and he gets explained. So verse 20, it says, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So that's what we see first. The ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. This is the empire that would come right after Babylon. So if you've been paying really good attention, then you remember that in Daniel chapter 5, after the handwriting is on the wall, Belshazzar dies that night, and the Medo-Persian Empire begins that very night. So that's what he's talking about. That's what is coming next. Are you with me so far? I got a sure. That's I'll take it. Verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, so like a unicorn, basically. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. This is a sneak attack, <laughs> right? The ram doesn't expect it, like you ever see in a football game where the quarterback just gets a blind side, just wham, like all of a sudden, well, he doesn't see it coming, he gets, uh, he gets destroyed. That's what happens. The, to the ram, this unicorn goat comes out of nowhere and just broadsides him and, uh, and, uh, and knocks him over, right? So what does the goat represent? Well, we don't have to wonder. We're told in verse 21, the goat is the king of Greece and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So the goat is the Greek empire. We have this empire that conquers the world with extraordinary speed, and the unicorn horn is the first king. History buffs in this room will be able to uh, say is Alexander the Great, who basically conquered the known world before his 27th birthday, which is pretty impressive. Addy, how old are you? 16. Okay, so you have 11 years to conquer the known world, and you'll be on par with Alexander the Great. That's pretty impressive, but his kingdom wouldn't last. Look at verse 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. All right, so that horn breaks, and then four more horns sprout out of his head. And what does that mean? Well, Gabriel tells us, verse 22, as for the horn that was broken... In place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. All right? So now we have this kingdom that's split into four, and four less powerful kings would arise. All right, so here we are. So we have the Medo-Persian king gets destroyed by Alexander the Great, who then dies, and the kingdom split into four kingdoms. Then verse 9, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. So now we have this little horn that sprouts out from these four horns. And if you're still following along this, this point, and if you've been here for Daniel, you might be thinking like, oh, I get it. 
This, there was a little horn in Daniel chapter 7, right? And now there's this little horn in Daniel chapter 8. And if you're thinking that, I'm just so proud of you because this is exactly how we should be reading our Bibles, right? Looking for things that connect to each other. Um, that's awesome. The problem is it's, it's wrong. It's a completely different little horn. This is why I've been pulling my hair out all week. Don't give up, though. It's okay. We're going to make it through this together. So this little horn is a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. This is different than the little horn in chapter 7. The little horn in chapter 7 represents some type of antichrist figure that would be overthrown by the Son of Man. But the little horn in Daniel chapter 8 is before that, and his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. And here's a side note. This guy, he had two brothers. One was named Seleucus Philophater, and the other brother, so they, think about his parents. You've know, got Antiochus Epiphanes, Seleucus Philophater, and they have one more child, and, and they decide to name him Jason. That's funny to me. I don't know. That's, that has nothing to do with anything. But just, yeah, it's Jason and Antiochus Epiphanes and uh, Seleucus Philophater. And so no offense to anyone named Jason. It's a great name, you know, uh, but uh, that's just beside the point. Let's keep going on in Daniel chapter 8. This Antiochus Epiphanes fellow was a really bad dude, okay? He persecuted the Jews, and he did some really bad stuff to the temple, which we see explained in verses 24 and 25. So look there with me. It says, His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So this persecution was going to be really bad. The little horn was going to have a lot of power. But if you stay with me for a second, we're going to see that even in this great persecution that was going to take place many, many years after Daniel, we still see God's hand in all of it if we look a little bit more carefully at the text. You see, the little horn wasn't going to do anything by his own power. Look at it. It says, verse 24, it says, not by his own power. What does that mean? It means that God... <laughs> was going to be the one who gave him power to persecute God's people, which is really interesting. And that leads us to the second thing, then, which is if the God was the one who would make him rise, then God would be the one who would make him fall as well. Verse 25, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. And that's true. He, he died, and it wasn't by a human hand. Do you want to hear how he died? I'll read it to you. It's really gross, okay? It's from one of my commentaries. It says, he was seized with several abdominal pains that never left him, and so he fell out of the chariot in which he was riding, and then as a result of the severe injuries from the fall and the attack of worms on his bowels, accompanied by a revolting stench, he finally died with vain petitions on his lips, imploring the God of Israel to spare his life. Pretty awesome, huh? Now, Daniel didn't know how he was going to die. But he did know that this persecutor of God's people would be both somehow given his power by God and then removed from his power by God. And then not only that, but because of that, it was going to be temporary. 
You see, Daniel, if we take a step back, we realize that he's being told really bad news. Daniel has been in exile now for, I forget, I'm sorry, it's maybe like 50 years. I can't really remember. He's been in exile for a while. And uh, he wants it to end, right? His people have been removed from their homes and their land. And he's been, he has to work for this awful king and then another awful king. And he's ready for it to be over. And he's getting this vision that says there's going to be all these kingdoms that come and they're not God's kingdoms. And then there's going to be this little horn that just does horrible things. And so the question is, how long is that going to be? And verse 14 tells us exactly how long it would be. It says, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. It's going to end after 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, there's lots of opinions about what 2,300 evenings and mornings like actually represents. Uh, if you want me to get into all of that, I, I'm just not going to. I'm sorry. You're, you're crazy if you really want me to get into all that. I'm not going to. I guess we can talk about it after the service. But that's not, it's not really the point. The point is that God is showing Daniel exactly what was going to come and that it was going to eventually come to an end. So we talk about the promise of God that still stands. And you wonder when you're in exile for your whole life, has God just completely forgotten about us? And it would be okay, right if he did because we've been so disobedient. So has God really forgotten about his people? And the answer is still no. But it's going to be a while. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision because it refers to many days from now. And we know it's going to be like 400 years from then. Um, so seal it up, meaning like preserve it. Like not like don't let anyone read it, but like preserve this thing because uh, it's going to be hundreds of years uh, before all this comes to pass. And it, chapter 8 closes with this, which is by far my favorite verse in this chapter. Look at verse 27. I, Daniel was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. You and me both, buddy. Like, I feel you, man. I also wanted to lay in my bed for a few days as I was studying this passage to preach, right? So I kind of, I laughed when I first read that verse because uh, how like human and real it is, right? But then uh, as I read it again, I noticed something that really stuck out to me. It was pretty cool. Look at it again. So he gets sick. And then what does he do? He got up and he went about the king's business. Isn't that fascinating? Remember, this was one of the men of Israel that was chosen to work in this Babylonian kingdom for an enemy king. This king was Nebuchadnezzar. Now it's Belshazzar. Belshazzar, just as prideful and awful as Nebuchadnezzar was. Like he's working for this guy who represents the punishment and oppression of his people, who represents the fact that his people have been forced out of their homes and their lands, and he's been working for this kingdom for basically his whole life, ever since he was a young man or even a teenager, perhaps. And so Daniel gets this vision that essentially tells him that even though this persecution is going to go on for a while and even get worse, it will eventually end. It's not going to last forever. And if I'm Daniel, I've, again, been working for, for years and years in, for the king. At this point, I'm probably just turning in my two weeks and, like, peace out 
This whole thing's going down. I'll see you later, right? I'm out of here. But he doesn't do that. It says, even though he was greatly disturbed by the vision, he still got up and went about the king's business. What does that mean? So I was thinking about that. I actually brought to mind something that happened in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote two letters to the Thessalonian church. The first letter was to tell them about the end times, about what was going to happen when Jesus returned. He said that the day of the Lord would be like a thief in the night. Right? It would come totally unexpected without warning. And if people weren't ready, it was going to destroy everything they had. It's going to sneak up on you. Apparently, some of the people in the church kind of misunderstood, and they said, oh, Jesus is coming soon. Cool. Peace out. <laughs> I'm not coming into work on Monday because uh, Jesus is coming back. And so the next letter that Paul writes to them, he warns them about being idle. He says, don't be idle. He says, you need to work. And what he's saying was the fact that Jesus could come back at any moment doesn't give you the right to just, like, stop living your life. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The fact that Jesus is in complete control of history actually makes us free to be the people he created us to be and to do the things that he gifted us to do. Let me say that again. The fact that Jesus is in complete and utter control of history, which we see in the 8th chapter of Daniel, we see all through our Bibles, and everything that Jesus has said would happen did happen, which means that everything he says is going to happen is going to happen because the whole timeline is completely under God's sovereign control. That very fact actually frees us up to be the people he created us to be and do the things that he created us to to do and gifted us to do. And we can go wrong on this a couple ways. So maybe, you, maybe you worry a lot. God didn't create us so that we would worry a lot about everything that's going on in the world. Sometimes something happens in the world and it makes you feel a little sick and maybe you need to lie in your bed for a few days, right? But what do you do after that? You get up and you go about the king's business. Go about the business that God has for you. So he didn't create you to worry all the time. And he also didn't create you to just do nothing because nothing matters because Jesus is coming back either. He created you for a purpose. If God is calling you to sell insurance right now, then you better do that with everything that you have in such a way that brings glory to God. If God is calling you to be a teacher, you're called to be the best teacher that you can possibly be for the glory of God. If he's calling you to be a doctor or homeschool your kids or to be a grandma, then you need to do all those things with everything that you have. Actually, there's a great example of this in our church. We have a picture of a group of women in our church who are doing just that right now. This is the Women of Faith group. Does everyone say hi to the Women of Faith group there in the back row, and they're just mortified that I'm showing their picture right now. It started out as a widow's ministry, but I know it's evolved into much more than that. And this is a picture of them with a bunch of blankets that they've made that are going to go down to Indianapolis through a ministry that Dr. Andrews uh, runs uh, to be given out along with other supplies to homeless people in Indianapolis to share the love of Jesus. It's an awesome thing. 
I love this. They're using the gifts that God has given them. They're using the time and the resources and the fellowship and the time that they love to spend with one another. They're using it for a purpose to do the things that God has called them to do because Jesus hasn't come back yet, which means he has things for us to do. Isn't that cool? Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Let me say that again. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Because, there's the kicker, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So ladies, every time you tie a knot in a blanket, you're tying that knot for Jesus. Every time you give a cup of cold water to one of the little ones, in Jesus' name, you're doing it for Jesus. Whatever you do, you're doing it for Jesus. Which means he wants you to do it with all your heart. So why did God give us Daniel chapter 8? Why is this crazy dream that God gave someone 2,500 years ago about events that would happen over 2,000 years ago? Like, why is this chapter in his word for us? Like I said, I've been asking that question all week, I promise. But I think it boils down to this. God is in control of history. God sets up kings. God takes them down. God knows the results of elections no matter how many days it takes to count the votes, right? God gives people their power to succeed, and he gives them worms attacking their bowels when it's time for them to fail. God is in control, and he's setting up his kingdom that will be fully consummated when he comes back. He's setting up his kingdom through the most powerful governments on earth? No. (laughs) How is God setting up his kingdom? Through the most humble means possible. Y'all, and me, and the church, the capital C church, right, which is shown in the local church. God is setting up his kingdom through the smallest things that you do humbly in the way that you love and serve one another and share the gospel to those who don't know Jesus yet. That's how God is setting up his kingdom. So don't be idle like the Thessalonian church when they heard Jesus was coming back. Don't be idle. Don't worry about what's to come. Let's get back to work and do everything that he calls you to do with all your heart because it is the Lord Christ you are serving, and he's a very good master indeed. Amen? How's that sound for Daniel chapter 8? Is that good? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, oh, you're, you're good to us. Somehow and in some way you are setting up your kingdom through the most humble way possible. And we are privileged beyond measure to be a part of that, God. Thank you. You didn't have to do it this way. Somehow, when the treasure of all treasures is placed in a meager jar of clay, that shows the world that the surpassing power of you, our Father, belongs to you, and it's not us by any means. So, Lord, forgive us for any ways that we've tried to make it seem like it's us. Help us to point to you in all that we do, in everything that you give us, in all the work that you have in front of us, in all the humble ways that we can love and serve one another. 
as David talked about, we're trying to love our community and, and meet needs, God, and all these humble things that maybe seem small to us, help us to see that we're actually serving you, God, and what a joy it is to do that. We love you. Thank you that you're in control of history. We don't have to worry about anything. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.